Well, as Beth said, and has given us this beautiful image, this is the end of ordinary time where we mark this pivot between now to Advent and this week variously called Christ our King or the Feast of the Reign of Christ. And you know how fast uh, time goes by. At only five weeks from now, we'll be singing, What Child Is This? And that song answers, This, this is Christ the King. That's who this child is. This is Christ the King. And remember the line that says, Let loving hearts enthrone him. So in a different way, uh, this morning, I'm going to bust out my best Billy Graham. And I'm going to ask you this morning, the beginning now, and until we come to the middle aisle and come down to Eucharist, that you decide this morning, where are the aspects in your life, maybe where there's not a loving heart in which he is enthroned? And I'll guide you through that as we go. So the Feast of the Reign of Christ, this last Sunday of the church year, summarizes like all the discipleship work we did this year in ordinary time. I'm sure you kind of remember it all now. Uh, But we began began with life's ordinary moments, right? And giving ourselves to Jesus in the ordinary moments of life. For the last 12 or 14 weeks, we um, studied 1 Corinthians and tried to think about what does it mean to be an ordinary church. So the Feast of the Reign of Christ summarizes all this discipleship work we've done, and then boasts as we pivot to Advent that Jesus is the world's one true Lord. And so this pivotal week is an invitation to worshipful surrender, to give ourselves as the cooperative friends of Jesus. But this is easier said than done. Because the biblical worldview, at least analogously, has three kingdoms, and I sort of say that in quotes, but you know, sort of three kingdoms in the Bible. First of all, there's the kingdom of God. And, you know, that's kind of an obscure phrase. I mean, you guys hear about it a lot because of me, but for a lot of Christians, that's kind of an obscure phrase. Like, what does that mean? And it just simply means God expressing himself. It's his rule and reign. Um, You all have a queendom or a kingdom. That is to say, you have a range of your effective will. You can move your arms and you walked in here, right? There are certain things that are within the range of your effective will. Well, for God within the range of his effective will is this. Let there be light. And there was light. And so the kingdom of God is just the spaces and places in which what God wants done is done. It's not far away and it's not way off later, but the kingdom of God is immediately present to us through the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And we now have, because of Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we now have direct access to God's kingdom through Jesus. It's great news. It's the best news the world could possibly hear. But within the parameters of God's love and wisdom, he allows rival kingdoms. And we read about that in Colossians. So there is what you might call the kingdom of darkness. And this is Satan in action. This is the range of Satan's effective will. And what he wants done is done. It's those spaces in which evil reigns. We have to say that exists on the earth. And then the third kingdom is the kingdom of me, the kingdom of you, the kingdom of us. And this is where what I want done is done. 
It's what I can control. It's what we mean when we use possessive pronouns. My purse, my car, my house, my briefcase, my laptop, my cell phone, right? These are all meant to show rule and reign over something that I possess. And this is kind of the great both cosmic dance of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of human beings, but it works its way down into our family systems, right? It works its way down into our workplaces. It works its way down into our marriages and friendships. And finally, it works its way down into our very most core beings. This sort of trinity of kingdoms. And this, by the way, is what Jeremiah is getting at, just one aspect of it, that this works its way into human leadership. Um, shepherds in the prophetic literature are um, metaphors or analogies for leadership. So when Jeremiah rails against these shepherds, you should think just leadership. And Jeremiah is pointing out these bad rulers who are being motivated by something other than God in his kingdom and that they're abusing the power that God has given them. And so for Jeremiah, they're examples of why we can't put our trust in any earthly place or any earthly person or any economic or political scheme. We actually can't put our whole trust in that. But a virtuous leader, Jeremiah prophesies, will come. A virtuous leader is going to arise who will bring justice and righteousness that will lead to God's final peace. This this is Christ the King. But the kingdoms of Satan and self, as I said, are, are allowed to exist for God's wise and loving reasons, and we will never understand those, but that's the best I think we can say. That of all the options God had available to him, this is the best one, where he allows rival kingdoms to exist for a time. But again, as we experience that as human beings, it makes the assertions that Beth so beautifully walked us through in Psalm 46 kind of seem like a fantasy of contradictions. I mean, the roaring waters seem to be winning. What would you have thought in the plague? What would you have thought as a faithful Jew in the 40s? What do you think when a young mom and Several little, killed, several little kids are suddenly killed in a car crash somewhere, right? Our experience is that these roaring waters seem to be winning. And so things like Psalm 46 must just be sort of religious rhetoric because they, they don't make any really good sense because the good still die young, wars persist, economic injustice spreads, suffering and hate continue, the innocents are slaughtered. We could go on and on and on. And this is the backdrop for our reading in Luke. The people had been waiting and waiting and waiting for this breakthrough, for this righteous, virtuous king to come who would begin to put an end to this. The backdrop of Luke 1 is that people are suffering and there seemed to be no hope. The world seemed to be locked into evil and brutal treatment of each other and wars and suffering and pain. It could be that this is why Zechariah had a really hard time hearing the message from Gabriel. 
that it just actually made no sense. And so he couldn't like, like maybe break through that, par- that, that barrier of there's a senselessness about this message from Gabriel. And it's like he couldn't break through that to find the faith that he normally had. It just seemed nonsensical. But Zechariah was the type of person who thought deeply about these things and prayed about them and discussed them with others and had hoped that this story was gonna find its fulfillment, that what God, be, as a faithful Jew, and you gotta just you know, think with Zechariah here, as a faithful Jew, he's thinking, surely what God, I mean, it doesn't look like it's happening, but surely what God began in Abraham is gonna happen. And the patriarchs and the judges and the kings and the prophets, and up to this moment, surely that story is going to culminate in something, and so he's hoping for a different day, and what you read in this is Zechariah sort of bursting forth and realizing that now God is acting at last, and he's gonna give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. He's gonna give a light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, And he is going to guide our feet into the way of peace. So look at me here. These other two kingdoms aren't going to go away. But we can learn to live in peace. They aren't going to go away. But we can stop the hate. They aren't going to go away. But we can learn to live grounded in Christ. In the inbreaking of his kingdom which is inaugurated and will someday be fulfilled. That can actually become the grounds of our being. The grounds of our being don't have to be in the circumstances of life that make Psalm 46 look like a fantasy. It can simultaneously look and feel like a fantasy because of the data in our news feeds. But we in our being can be grounded in something else. This is the invitation. So it's true, I get it, that we don't seem wise enough these days or strong enough or moral enough to fix the large, complex, broken human systems. Seriously, I can see how, excuse me, I can see how smart, well-intentioned people can think differently about human healthcare. It's a big problem to care for almost 300 and I've lost track, 70 million people or something, that's a really big problem. And I can see how reasonable people would have, you know, different suggested recipes for doing it. And we could go on and on and on. What happens to the middle class when technology and globalism has bypassed them? What happens to the refugees all over the world for whom in their experience, who cares about us? Does anybody care about us? Does anybody see us? Like, you know, it's one thing to see that people are fighting about us. It's another thing to think someone sees me. Someone sees my fear. Someone sees that I'm really, I'm willing to risk, to risk everything, to give my kid to a coyote, to take him through Central America, up through Mexico, and get him somewhere into America, because God may be somewhere, somebody will take care of him. That's real human stuff. I get how these are big problems. But I think we can't let them make us passive because we always can do this. We can always ask, what power do I have in my current sphere of influence? We can ask, 
Where did I get this power? And to whom am I accountable for it? We can always ask ourselves, whose interests am I serving with this power that I have? And these kinds of questions help us call to mind and to live into what you might think of as our creation covenant or our job description before God. That when God imagined humanity, he imagined something like this, a people who would be loyal to him, functioning in a personal relationship of interactive responsibility with him, right? Why do, what's my servance? Why do I have this power? For whom am I responsible? Because we too, having been made in the image of God, we have a rule. Now this is one of those moments where I need your full attention again. Made in the image of God, we too have a rule, a reign. But here's the deal. We were meant to exercise our rule only in union with God as he acts in and through us by the Spirit. That is the meaning of humanity. I am made in the image of God. I've been given a rule. But that rule is never meant, was never meant to be individualized. It was always a communal and, and a, a, a connected kind of activity that there was a people of God connected to him and that our rule was meant to be done in union with him as he acts in and through us by the Spirit. All right, so with that backdrop, uh, here comes the altar call. And if you're in the upper deck, the buses will wait. <laughs> so here's the work I think I want to help us do this morning. To take seriously the question, does Jesus reign in my life? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right beside us. And this is an invitation to place your life in the kingdom of God. Would you like to? This is a call for deep alignment to God's purposes. Would that make you happy? This is an invitation to lay down your burdens and take on the easy yoke of Christ. Are you willing to do so? This is both a summons and a basis for discipleship to Jesus, to become one who is with Jesus and learning to be like him. Do you intend to do so? This is an invitation to love Jesus completely, that seeing his magnificence, that we would allow his love to fill our lives. Does that sound good to you? This is an encouragement to spiritual formation, to flourish in God's kingdom for the sake of others. Are you willing to do so? This is an invitation to live in and for Jesus. Now that lovely and well-known phrase that Beth read to us from Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. This, in this context, just to be honest, like to be exegetically honest, in the context of Psalm 46, this is not meant to be a, a little bit of sweet reflection for a retreat, <laughs> though it can be that. And I've used it that way many times, I still do. But I just, if we're just being honest to the text, that's not what's going on here. What's going on here is best illustrated, I think, by a week or so ago, I had coffee with Will, and we were done, and he looked at me with kindness and said, are you okay? You seem a little nervous or anxious or something, and no one ever asked me that, and I said, N I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm a guy. I don't feel. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 
I said, I don't know, why do you say that? And he said, your legs have been shaking the whole time we've been sitting here. Well, I've been doing that since I was two. I don't even know I do it. But sometimes, if we're sitting in a certain place where Debbie can feel it, she'll put her hand on my thigh and go, stop it. (laughs) Will knew that would be a little awkward, so he didn't. (laughs) But that's what's happening in this passage. Stop it. This is actually a command. Stop it. Be still. The world's raging, God might say, I get it. But you don't have to rage. It doesn't have to foment in you. Stop it. Be still. This is a really sharp word. It's a stop what you're doing and stop what you're thinking. It's like snap to attention and come to an alert stillness so that you can recognize I am your refuge and strength. But you will not recognize that when your mind and heart is doing this. It can't be done. So be still and know that I'm God. And our reading in Colossians gives us a rational basis for doing it. When Paul says that God's power has already delivered us from the kingdom of darkness, we're already delivered from it and has given us into the kingdom of his son. And that that the same power that did that, obviously what's in view here is the Exodus, right? How God firstly delivered Israel through the waters to the promised land. Paul's saying God has done that to us spiritually as well. So we've now been delivered or had an exodus into the kingdom of his son. And the same power that that delivered Israel and that delivered us is at work in us. And so this is an invitation to notice it, to stop and notice that I am God and learn to cooperate with it. What Paul wants us to know is, look, you have been qualified to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. You have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son. This can become your reality. And then I love the way Eugene captures kind of the the visionary, imaginative rationale for this when in the message he has Paul saying, look at this son and see God's purpose in everything created. Everything got started in him and everything finds its purpose in him. So spacious is Jesus, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things and atoms and animals, all get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies because of his death, his blood, that poured down from the cross. That's the rationale for doing this. You are never gonna find a rationale for doing this in your news feeds. And you're not often gonna find a, a steady rationale for doing it internally. But we can work on the, intern, the internal reality by living with that kind of an imagination. So the gospel of King Jesus on this feast of the reign of Christ is that life in God's kingdom is available to us now. We can experience the kingdom and live in it by placing our confidence in Jesus for everything. 
and that by being his constant students, precisely because we have confidence in Jesus as the one who is the king of the kingdom, we can have confidence then that what Jesus said in Matthew 28 is true. I have say over all things in heaven and on earth. That is the rationale for human groundedness that allows us to not merely go through life like this, but to be still and know that he is God. For God's desire is that through Jesus, we would live in Jesus and that we would base our life on the revelation of his kingdom. There's plenty of drama in the unfolding kingdom of God to keep anybody interested and anybody feeling fully alive. And so what I'm gonna ask you this morning, as you come to Eucharist, that this be our sort of Anglican altar call. And maybe one of those things I read a few moments ago when I asked you, are you interested? Would you like to? Perhaps the spirit just helped you notice one of those things. And as you come this morning, you can do a couple of things. You can both place your life on the altar using that biblical imagery, and you can also be fed by what the Spirit will do with you and through you as you receive bread and wine. If you need a little summary to help you, in terms of our reading in Colossians, maybe you need to ask yourself this morning, do my current practices of life allow Christ to have preeminence or first place in my life? Or let's get to what you honestly want. Would you like to derive your life from the life of God as it's expressed in his kingdom? Would you like to live your life within the kingdom of God for the sake of others? So as we come to this quiet time now, I want you to try to note that I used the word invitation numerous times this morning. Call, beckon, invite. What is the one invitation you most clearly heard? What is the one you felt the Spirit highlight for you? And you can begin to work with him now noticing and paying attention to what he's saying. And as we say the creed, you can deepen that. And as we pray for others, you can go still deeper. And when we get to confession, you can say to God what's real. As we give, you can do so as a sign of your commitment to God and his kingdom. And as we come to the table, you can take that broken place and metaphorically put it on the table and receive the life of Christ as you break bread and sip the cup.